but so like well give, give the context for what was what was going on there ben because i actually do want to talk about this yeah um so 2015 16 i'm at higher view and we start running into io psychologists and they're the gatekeepers for some of these accounts and we we can't understand them and they can't understand us and so it it's honestly just a jargon mismatch so we're talking about the same things but just ships passing in the night we can't understand each other and the problem if you can't understand each other sometimes you assume the other side is an idiot and so the ios thought well they don't know what the hell they're doing and we thought well they don't they don't know what they're doing and it wasn't until i was speaking this was my very first psyop and i had lunch with someone and they're explaining their validation process how they do um, a one-time holdout and they define the r value from that and then i realized that they weren't up to speed on some of the more sophisticated uh, validation methods and so i quickly changed my talk and i'm giving a talk and i'm i'm telling this telling this whole audience of ios that you your industry doesn't understand statistics on par with data science i'm going to show you <laughs> and then i proceeded to explain k folding i explained that their yeah. process was not only potentially invalid but even misleading I, I think i said during the talk poll that if you if you do it your way a one-time cut well then why not just do a million simulations on the data or a thousand pick the highest ardent number like something that would be like super awful but people are realizing well i guess you could do that i wonder if people do that and so the i think the talk was a little heavy i, I had some young students in the audience asking if they needed to learn programming i said absolutely and i think for young ios that's the last thing you want to hear you're right. like, I just went through all this schooling. I want to get a job. I don't want to. How'd you get tied up with the IO community if that's not mm. your natural background? It, it, I don't, someone at higher view realized you have to, if you're not at PSYOP, you're not relevant. And it's funny. I, I had, <laughs> so, so Cole, I'll quickly get to the other side of this to save myself. But initially I didn't have a lot of respect for IOs and I thought we didn't need any. And then we hired Nathan Mondragon as our chief IO psychologist. I love Nathan. Nathan, working with Nathan, because Nathan had a team of IOs and I had a team of data scientists. The IOs and the data scientists, they didn't really, it's like oil and water. They didn't really mix well. Yeah. Nathan and I mixed so well that I felt like I became a defender of IO and he became a defender of data science. And so I would call him out and be like, Nathan, you're sounding like a data scientist, like stuff based on things he would say. And so... I, I've come full 360 that I, or a 180, where I'm a huge fan of IOs. They're domain experts. You always need a domain expert with any AI project to be successful. And if you don't, then there's a liability. There's a huge gap. And so I, I don't see a future where IOs get replaced by data scientists. That sounds like a really bad idea. I, I do see a future. Can I come back IOs. to this, Ben? Yeah. Because uh, I, I want to come back to And I actually have it written down here. I have k-fold story <laughs> because <laughs> i remember that speech and it was actually kind of a seminal speech in my career mm -hmm. um because up until that point i thought that a um io had like all the magic and there was no other magic to be found <laughs> and then then this guy comes to this conference that i'm at and he says hey all the stuff that you're doing is not good enough and you're like what uh -huh. <laughs> you know <laughs> and and i remember the specific example was you were like saying you know, with a particular project, you might do like one cross validation of your data set to see if it matches up or zero. And I'm going to go up here and do a K folds validation that's going to look at is 
you know, in almost an infinite number of ways, and it's going to maximize the fit of your model. And, and I think you even did say, like, you know, data science is going to like trump IO psychology every time or something like that. And I was like, and I think a lot of people bristled at that. But yeah. I actually took it as a moment like that was the moment I think I became an analytics practitioner versus being an IO psychologist. I'm still an IO psychologist, but I really went deep on everything like data engineering, machine learning. After that point, I've, I've probably pulled back a little bit over the last few years, but I actually wanted to give you credit for that. And it's funny, you know, before we joined the podcast, uh, ben, ben mentioned to me that I think I, I called him an asshole for saying Which that. Which I really, the, really at appreciated. The yeah, you, but, you also you want that feedback, right? In your storytelling speaking career. Feedback when is the funny thing is you were an amazing asshole. Like you were the asshole that Psyop needed. And the, the reason why is because I wanted to fast forward, like, you know, the you said the students came up to you and they asked, Do you need to learn programming? And it was probably a little demotivating for them. If you fast forward three years into the future at Psyop, they had a data science competition that had over five hundred students involved. And so oh, that would have literally, I, I attribute that to you, Ben Taylor, that would have not <laughs> happened if it were not your speech. Like I, you well, evolved our field with one speech. Well, Cole, you'll think this is funny. I also have a reputation in the past for being an asshole in the data science community. Um, <laughs> Equal opportunity asshole. Yeah. Well, it, I think it, I've it's, seen some of that stuff online. Well, yeah. So one of the very first blog posts I wrote and we could talk about like ego journey because I think that's an important thing for people to to talk through because early in your career you have insecurities and then you gain some competence. But no one should be an asshole. Like I, I don't I I don't think you should be. But early on in data science, I wrote I was writing a, a blog piece about how to hire your first data scientist. And if that was the title, eh, four hundred people would have read it. So I changed the title to "This is why your data scientist sucks," and then I rewrote blog with some language where if you're an executive or a business leader who hired a data scientist, if you relate to what I'm saying, I want you to fire the data scientist at the end. So I don't, I don't say that as bluntly as I'm explaining it, but that was what I wanted you to feel. And that one really popped. It was shared in some million follower, big data group. This is back when LinkedIn was much more manual, where you actually had a human making the decision that, oh, this is funny. <laughs> Like this looks like a hornet's nest and they throw it into this group and it exploded. It's funny. I had so many, you know, we joke that data scientists and IOs, they're both introverts. Like they, you know, they, who stares at whose shoes out of the two, they're very introverted. And so a lot of the IO, a lot of the data scientists took it very personal. I don't know you. Random data scientists at IBM. I don't know you. I've never met you. And I would argue if you get mad by this article, you have bigger problems. Like, don't get mad at me. But the funny thing, Cole, is sometimes if you bring a sledgehammer into an argument, like IO, that example you gave, or this example, both of those, I have met some of the most significant people in my entire career. So the, the most significant people in my entire career, Jeremy Aiken, the founder of Data Robot, I met because of that data science article. Um, he eventually bought my company years later, five or six years later. And well, then we'll get to that, Ben. We're going to go oh, through yeah. your history at some oh, point. Sorry. So yeah. no, 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 I just keep going. I just want to make sure well, that we're not, we don't just gloss over some of the key points. Well, it's kind of funny because you're weighing. So I'm saying no one should ever be an asshole because I would really argue that now. But if there is an argument that has to be hit, I, I've seen benefit historically for being a heavy hitter. Like if you can 
pick a topic you're passionate about and and don't don't hold back punches on it yeah that, that that's actually another thing and and, and scott I'll, I'll rope you in here too in a second but like I've been writing some articles and obviously we've got this podcast and we kind of try to straddle that line of being punchy. Cause like what I would call what you're doing, you're not doing clickbait, right? Other people write clickbait, but there's no content there. You write excellent content, but you make it punchy enough that people actually want to read it if they hadn't wanted to read it otherwise. And so like, I don't know if I'm as brave as you are, Ben, but I, I think that you have an excellent, you get the internet and I think you have an excellent strategy for kind of gamifying people's anger or gamifying kind of their interest to get your message out there. Well, it's funny you mentioned the clickbaity thing because there, there's so much power in the words that you choose. And so another post that I did in the data science community that just lit a fire on people is I, I was having, I was having a bad day because we're getting sued out of a contract at my startup. And it was this data scientist that I completely blamed on the other side. It, it wasn't because of a lack of value that we could bring to the company. It was an individual. And so I wrote a post and I said, data scientists are like leeches going from host to host, consuming resources for tuition without delivering value. Like it, it was well-written. Yeah, that's, that's not poetry, great. man. That is poetry. But you can imagine you throw that post in the data science community and they're, you know, they want you, you get a reaction. Yeah, yeah. you can get pitchforks and torches. <laughs> You, you seem to have a you seem to have a history of pissing people off. Like, where does this come from? Well, have you always been sort of like a avant garde sort of person? So we can talk about the ego journey because the funny thing is, pissing people off is not a good recipe for success. Like, I, I during those days, I had people give me feedback that you're too negative. You, my my posts are too negative. They're too antagonizing, and it's really fascinating. I had someone reach out years later where they reconnected with me and they said, can I talk to you? And I was like, sure. And so this person reached out, we jump on the phone and they said, Hey, I stopped following you years ago. I didn't need to see all of that stuff you were posting. And, and yeah. it was just a bad energy. And then they said, I am so moved and touched by the things you post today. I'm one of your biggest fans. And he wanted to know what happened. And I think, and this brings up this concept of ego journey. So for most junior people, even the ones that think they're great, I would argue they're very insecure. So you're a, you're an IO psych or you're a data scientist and you have your first job and you're surrounded by senior people, senior and principal people. They know a lot more than you do. And you feel a little insecure. You don't want to ask stupid questions. You want to show how smart you are. And when you go through that ego journey, then you reach levels of competence where you're, you're senior, mm -hmm. your principal, I worked as a, quant at a hedge fund i was the chief data scientist at higher view every member of my data science team had a phd in physics and so you, you do you will reach kind of a peak in your ego journey and unfortunately for some people you have to get over that arrogance because um it's not kind it's not welcoming to junior talent and uh, being an asshole is not a good state to be in and so fortunately for me the startup really kicked my ass so i did three years of startups um, so I, I did a startup first year. We had three acquisition offers and my ego was out of control. My ego, we signed one, which is hilarious. So we signed a letter of intent. It was 15 million in stock. We had no, it's our first year having a company. Like we have like a few customers. We, it's not a real company. It's an yeah. aqua hire, $15 million. 
last year, that stock would have been worth 150, 200 million. And I'm losing sleep because it's not enough. And so if you say not enough, not enough That's for ego. Your, yeah, yeah, not enough for your wife, not enough for your kids. It's totally ego. And so fortunately, the startup just dragged my face on the sidewalk um, three years later where I'm desperate to sell. I absolutely, uh, to give you a glimpse of a pressure cooker, for people that are listening, if you have a job, you can quit. You let, let's say you have a bad day today. You can quit Monday. I would argue you might have enough savings to go to Costa Rica for a few weeks. Even if you have to get some angry messages from credit cards and your bank, mm-hmm. you're, you're actually fine. Just go take a break. And if you understand how to get a job, you'll go get a job. You're fine. As a founder, you can't do that. You've raised capital from investors. You have engineers that are working under market pay. They believe this inflection point. You have customers. So you feel completely trapped. And that is an awful place to be if you want to, if you want to self-eject. And so, um, so for people that, have, so it's interesting that individual reached out and said that I'm a very different person than I was. Um, and I think that's interesting. That's one thing I wanted to actually talk to you about because I've seen that evolution, Ben, and I wanted, I kind of have this, I didn't like block you in the past or anything because mm-hmm. I actually thought your punchy stuff was actually really interesting. But I, I do like the new version of Ben, but maybe just for our listeners who, who don't know who you are, Ben, who, who are you? And like, oh. what, what's your background real quick? Just so yeah. for like, I, most of us, most of the people that listen probably will know who you are, but just for those who don't. Yeah, so I'm Ben Taylor, live in Utah. I studied chemical engineering undergrad in grad school. In math, uh, in high school, I was obsessed with math. Uh, I worked in Intel and Micron for five years. Everything related to data, process control, fault detection, yield analysis, excursion analysis. So anything in semiconductor related to data, I had experience there. Really early on, Cole, even though I was studying chemical, I studied chemical engineering to go to medical school. That's what I was planning to do. My brother's a doctor, my dad's a doctor. I fell in love with computer vision and high-performance computing. So I worked at a high-performance computing hedge fund as a quant, a 600 GPU cluster. That really gave me my strong foundation in data science because um, before data science was just a hobby or an interest. And then I joined HireVue, which, which I was super excited about because they were backed by Sequoia. I had no interest in HR because I had bad experiences with HR at Intel Micron, not with me being pulled into HR, but hearing stories about some master's level engineer through a fit like a five-year-old because they didn't get a promotion. And you're just like, those are the people that go to HR. So I had this very negative stereotype. Um, I worked at HireVue for four years, had a blast and really helped them launch their AI product. Um, and then I got the itch to go to a startup, a co-founded Zeph.ai, deep learning auto ML platform, did that for three years, sold that to DataRobot uh, right at the beginning of 2020. And then I was a DataRobot for two years as their chief AI evangelist and then switched over to their chief AI strategist the last four months. And, and then I resigned. And that was five weeks ago. And I feel like it's been years ago because my the, the last five weeks of my career have been just pure insanity. And we can get into the details of that. And that's, um, that's yeah. why you're here today. Because I, I just, I couldn't not be like, Man, this is a this is a not even a slow moving. This is a fast moving car accident, but it's also like you were like ejected from the car and then you all learned how to fly while you were ejected. And I was like, whoa, this is really fucking crazy. We've got to have him on here. Have you just been sitting on a beach in Costa Rica this entire time? (laughs) No, because when I resigned, (laughs) I had no job lined up 
and I've got a pretty expensive mortgage in play because we're building a house and it's a recession. And so you, yeah, I resigned, uh, but I think it, it also hits on this history of, so for, for new college grads, I, I quickly try to tell them that they have to avoid the lie of job security. So the first employer tells you a lie about job security and, and you need to get over that. So get over the lie of job security because you'll, you'll feel vulnerable. And I don't want people to feel vulnerable. I want them to have confidence in their abilities. And so you quickly want to get to market security. And I, I didn't realize market security until I joined HireVue. And it wasn't me. It was their engineers. I was so impressed with their engineers. I felt like I love working with these people. It, here's the distinction. And I, I feel bad because I am going to throw a company under the bus. But at Intel and Micron, there were engineers that had worked there for 20 years and they're maxed on comp. They don't want to work five minutes past five. They actually don't want to learn anything new. And that's fine. Like, I, I don't I actually don't fault them for that. Because it's called retired on the job. Yeah. Or um, what's the quiet quitting? Like they're, they're just not engaged yeah. and that's, become like unmanageable at this point. Cause like yeah. they can't offer you any sort of incentive. You can't, but also they're, they're just coasting right above a pit. Like they're, Oh, gotcha. and then I go join higher view and I was so impressed with their engineers. I, I honestly felt like if the CTO Lauren Larson walked in the room and said, Hey, we screwed up on funding uh, your last paid, we we're gonna miss payroll, no paychecks. Um, the company's the company has failed. Every engineer I worked with at HireVue, they would get a raise. Thank you for the raise. I'll have five job offers within a few weeks. And and seeing that really convinced me of market value. And for people that go further on in their career, it's you have quarterly value. If you're an executive, most executives they do survive quarter by quarter. Um, and so me me resigning, I guess. It's. I had more urgency to resign than I wanted to because I was actually hoping to wait. I was I was starting to talk to people, trying to find a good fit because I knew I was going to eject. But I had urgency to bring up my resignation, so I I literally had nothing lined up. That was final. And um, well, why did you feel like the impending need to resign at this point? It, there was a wave of attrition that was coming, yeah. so I was very close to our engineers and CFTSs and. Um, and I could see that just inside just conversations with them. And so I felt like if I could move my resignation up, it might cause enough of a reaction. Um, and, and, I, and good things have happened. So a, a lot of executives were fired. Members of the board were fired. I'm really ex- excited about the new CEO. Like they, there were some things that had to happen. Like they were in their own pressure cooker. They were in their own reality distortion that could not be sustained. Um, but it's so it's sort of like cleaned house when you 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 kind of sounded the alarm bell, right? It was already sounded in the media like a month before, but nothing was happening. So it, there was an article that came out, and it and it, and so I so I write the resignation letter. So I'm. I'm on a flight from New York to Utah, three glasses of wine, and I write this resignation letter. <laughs> and that is not the one that ended up being posted. That one was just like an emotional vomit of like all this stuff. And then I, I rewrote it, sent it to the board, the, the execs, and then post it, post it to the employees. And um, it, the whole situation is, it's complicated. It's unfortunate. Yeah. And 
so I, I resign. It's leaked to the news. I don't really know what that means. I mean, I'm actually anticipating that this is really, really bad for me because I, I don't know what the consequences are. I know the consequences are I don't have a job, but I, I'm hoping the consequences aren't more than that. Um, but the, the thing that didn't, my private resignation didn't go viral. That was in a few news articles. It was my public resignation that went viral. That was a week later or not almost a week later on Thursday. That's had 2.5 million views on LinkedIn ended up on TikTok, Reddit. It, that one just yes. kind of went to the moon. And that's, so Cole, you'll think this is funny. For, with that post, within 24 hours, I had 110 interviews scheduled on my Calendly. Just completely slammed. And honestly, I was an idiot because I didn't, no bathroom breaks. And even the time my willingness to accept meetings was too wide. So imagine like having nonstop interviews from like 5 a.m. until 7 p.m. And I did 31 of them. I was, I was so determined that I will do 100 consecutive interviews. And my friends were like, that's stupid. You're not showing your best self. But I honestly, I noticed I was being very repetitive. So I meet some executive. I tell my story. And I, and I just felt like this is such a waste for me to repeat myself. Because it. I'm not necessarily a good fit for a lot of companies. Like, and it's not just me. It, it could be them. Like, there's kind of that process. And so I recorded my 14-minute interview and posted that to YouTube. And then I canceled the whole next week. The whole next week, I had eight inter interviews, canceled all of them, sent them the YouTube link. And then I went fishing, went camping in the desert. And that was kind of what I needed. But because my phone was blowing up, I had so many text messages from ex-employees current employees random people because my phone number was leaked on the oh, resignation letter so my my i could just look at my phone in real time and post 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 like just all this inbound and so i needed to get away from my phone yeah. and going fly fishing I had, I had three people that didn't know i knew you that didn't know each other all reach out to me the morning you posted your resignation letter to say, have you seen this guy at data robot? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what I, the hell is going on? What's going on with Ben? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when you talk about this ego journey, because I gave a ask me anything at Berkeley a couple of weeks ago, which was actually pretty fun. And I think from the class's perspective, they get excited. They say, you know, what is it like to have, you know, interview at that rate or, or what, what's it like to have this attention and the last five weeks have been really really hard so being on a plane every day you know 90 percent travel away from my family but also there there is something that's kind of selfish about that because most people get jobs and i finished 100 interviews and i'm i'm still interviewing why am i still interviewing why don't i just accept a job and so it's it's kind of this why, 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 why don't you accept a job then? Like, have, have there been no offers or like, essentially, no, so what, I, what you've I, derived I, is highly valued? Yeah. So I had offers, but it was more complicated than that because I, I had healthcare partnerships that were attached to me. I, I, I really like the Saudis and I've got relationships there. Mm -hmm. And so I would interview with some of these execs and they would say, well, we'll start initiatives in healthcare and we'll start initiatives with the Saudis. But if you're starting from zero, that doesn't sound fun. Like, mm -hmm. And so it was really trying to find a company where I could maximize what I do well, be challenged, but a company that could step in 
that had existing healthcare relationships and existing relationships with the Saudis. And so that's kind of, that's a really short list. There's not, but yeah, it's you, diff- you're, you're not being blackballed though. That, that's, that's oh, no, 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 no. I, so I, I had job offers very, very quickly. So like within 24 there hours, I had real offers. I had offers in my inbox, but it's, it, it so it was interesting because I think maybe this is, uh, you're probably more qualified to weigh in and try to unpack this, but I wonder sometimes if our strengths are tied to like inner childhood insecurities. So like I desperately want my dad to be proud of me. And so me not feeling appreciated to date a robot and exiting, and then me going on this rampage where every day I fly somewhere and I meet with a CEO and they tell me I'm awesome and they want to hire me. That feels great. And then I go do it again. There's something that's actually really dysfunctional about that where they, so I had one breakfast where a CEO transferred money into my PayPal, like during breakfast, he really wants to hire me. And, but why am I on a plane tomorrow? Is it, so does that make sense? It's just, so yeah. it, I remember hearing kind of a quote about, about Olympians one time, which is, you know, I'm butchering it because I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines of, how many people in this room would be here if they had just gotten a hug from their parents or something like, oh. like, <laughs> I love because that. like they're, they're searching for that, that meaning and that fulfillment and that hole in their heart in, in just a, a variety of different ways. Yeah. Well, I, I, no, I, I love that. Cause I think sometimes, so people talk about breaking the cycle and you, I, I felt more criticism, I think when I was, growing up, you know, just, you know, trying to kind of measure up to this bar and people talk about breaking the cycle where you love your kids, you give them hugs, you're fully present. But I think some people that are incredibly driven, they didn't have that. And so it's interesting. um, How do you produce a human with the most potential to maximize their unique vector? That's actually, it's a, it's a difficult science. I mean, I've heard a lot of people talk about like Michael Jackson, like Michael Jackson was produced in a very, very perverse way. But, you know, we as all of humanity have all of his greatness of his musical, you know, ability for with us forever because of that. And then there's also the consequences of that on him as a person and then uh, the eventual, you know, allegations about his, you know, what he's done with children and all that kind of stuff. And so it, it, the grinding gears of greatness cut both ways. Let's put it that way. Oh, it's yeah. And on this topic, so this is a little personal, but I, I'll, I'll share it. Cause I think it's within it, it's on the topic. So I resign it. I resign Saturday morning, really early, like at 2am. And then the next day I go up and meet with my dad and, and I'm, I'm encouraged not to do that because I'm kind of in a sensitive state. And so I meet with him and he's explaining the, I I think if you go back in time, the earlier generations, they're more conservative pension funds. You work at an employer. And so he's, he's, he's explaining his concerns over my resignation. I don't have a job lined up. We do have a, you know, fairly significant mortgage in play on this construction loan. And I have an emotional reaction and I, a, a little bit, and I kind of 
I push back and I say, well, dad, you, you might not know this, but I'm actually a pretty big deal in the AI space. And then he says the most perfect thing. He says, we will see about that. And this is before my public <laughs> oh, resignation. Wow. And, but you could argue, going back to what makes you, he said the most perfect thing. So some people might hear that and say, uh, yikes. But honestly, so he taught me to be self-made. You know, I, I did construction before I was even legal, like roofing, being paid on the table. I, yep. I did hard labor all through high school to pay for things. And I'm, I'm used to just figuring stuff out. Like, I don't need someone to help me. I don't need, safe, I don't need a safety net. And so, it, yeah, so it's so funny, Cole. You, you hear something like that and you see this dynamic, but that's also what drives just that. It, it's, it's quite bizarre. I think the issue with the human brain is it is so complicated. Like, you can, you can spend your entire life trying to understand yourself. You won't. You'll never actually fully understand you. It sounds like you're a journeyman psychologist yourself in a, in a way, or maybe a Buddhist monk or something. I don't know. Well, I, I, one of the things I've really learned to crave the last couple of years is I think, unfortunately, in society, we are not vulnerable enough. So people want to think, people want other people to think that they have everything figured out, that things are okay, their marriage is fine, their income is fine, their self-esteem is fine. But the more you can open up with other people in your industry, and, and be vulnerable because we're all going to die. So and can I ask you about this, Ben? Cause like, yeah, I, I just want to hit you with like a little quick rapid fire of a few, like, I think they're facts that I know about you oh, sure. and they're kind of related to this and you can go choose any of them and go whatever direction you want. But like, I remember you said you worked at a hedge fund and you said you saw grown men cry all the time. Yeah. You yeah. lived in the woods while you were in college, I believe for an extended period of time. I remember seeing you post that I think you climbed a mountain when you hadn't eaten in like 12 days or something like that. And you like almost <laughs> like didn't make it down. Uh, like, I think you, you at one point you told me you slept in like a bariatric chamber and sleep like four hours a night or something like that. Like, is, is all this having to do with kind of like humans are not strong enough? They're not, you know, doing enough. Like they don't have enough adversity. Like, does that have anything to do with any of these things? Well, it has to do with challenging yourself. Like I think, so the other thing, Cole, to add to that, I've been doing these long distance trail runs that uh, I ran 27 miles, 5,000 vertical feet, which is really interesting. So this is in the mountains. And at mile 20, I start crying. Like, and I cry pretty hard for 10 minutes, but I'm running, which is something I, I didn't know if that was possible. Can I? Yeah, it's like cry. walking and chewing bubble gum. Is that yeah, possible? Yeah, exactly. Can I ugly cry while I'm doing a physical activity? And apparently you can. And I think that's why some people get addicted to ultra running because from a psychological perspective, you go to some really weird places. Like you, um, so yeah, so a lot of those things you hit on are, are true. Um, that So one quick correction, it wasn't 12 days, it was seven days. So I ate no food for seven days and then I climbed a, pretty significant mountain it's like 13 12 or 13 miles round trip four to five thousand vertical feet high elevation and the funny thing is it wasn't hard physically it was hard mentally like 90 percent of me doing that was all in the mind um and then i did polyphasic sleeping for a few years i don't do that anymore uh i think the thing i learned from polyphasic sleeping is we should all be better at napping 
So like, let's say Tuesday afternoon, two or three, you're like, man, I'm really dragging. You can go have a coffee or you can go have a 15 minute nap. And if you get really good at that 15 minute nap, I think that's really good. I think that's good for you. I, I think it's good for your health and your, you'll notice your cognitive abilities coming back. And then I did live in the woods. Uh, it made news in 2003. Uh, I was on channel two TV twice, seven newspaper articles and radio talk shows. And I had two sponsorships doing it, which is funny. I did not do it to get attention. I was actually embarrassed that I was doing it. I didn't want people to know. So it wasn't until three months and I did it in the snow. It got down to 15 below zero. Um, and I did that two winter semesters. Yeah. I think we're just incapable of just being average, Ben. <laughs> I, well, I think this is what it comes down to. Well, I don't know if that's a good thing. It's, it comes with its own challenges. I, one of the things I really like is backcountry skiing and mountaineering. And, and there are definitely situations I put myself in. Um, I could, I could text you a, a photo of some of these situations, but it's, I guess it goes into the category of being present. So if I think I'm about to die because I'm dropping off the peak of superior and there's an avalanche breaking beneath me, you're not thinking about anything else. Or if you're climbing in the dark and you have crampons on and your toe starts to slip and you swear, you're not thinking about anything else. You're not, you're not thinking about work. You're not thinking about the future. And so I, but the same thing happens if you're running. So I, I, I do like finding moments where I can be fully present. I kind of compare it to meditation. I, I would argue, just like people can go on a walk to kind of reset their creativity if you're working on a problem. If you can do something where you're fully present, I would argue you get a lot of benefits, like yoga, other things. Uh, that's like the whole thesis behind that famous book from the 1960s, Be Here Now, which mm -hmm. kind of like kicked off the whole like, you know, I don't even think it's meditation, but like mindfulness movement and just being in the moment and how that's the key to happiness and, and fulfillment. And yeah, I mean, I, I definitely jive with that. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because the other thing too, the, the last four, four to five weeks, some of my posts, some of my posts online, I, I've actually gone back and deleted some of my posts the last four weeks because it, it was Which I, I found in research for this podcast. I was like, I, I swear I saw this. Ben said something, and that was I can't oh, find yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it comes up with this storytelling um trick. So there's a lot of power and vulnerability, but only if you've figured your shit out. So, like if I talk about something that I've been gone to the other side about, then there's a lot of power in that. So if I'm talking to an audience or if I'm talking to you live. But if I'm trying to navigate something that I don't quite understand, then it becomes a live therapy session. And that can just be a little, be a little weird, a little awkward and oversharing. It's oversharing. And, and, you know, I, I definitely had multiple posts on LinkedIn this, this month that I think did cross the line where it's just emotional <laughs> vomiting online that this is a really shitty situation to be in. And it's hard. And, and I have a lot of anger that, I'm directing towards the board and other people in the past that are just anger is not a good energy to carry. It's uh, someone said it when you're really angry, it's like drinking poison and hoping that it'll kill the other person. It's yeah. Yeah. Well, can I talk about the resume you posted for a second? Cause I know before <laughs> yeah. the podcast, we were talking about how much bullshit resumes are. 
Yeah. The thing I, I literally, when I saw it, I laughed out loud because I went to the bottom left-hand corner and you had these like bar charts of like how good you were at certain <laughs> skills. And then one of the skills was cronyism and the bar chart was very small. And I was like, that's the most Ben Taylor thing to put on a resume I've ever seen. It was hilarious. I don't know. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah. So the so most most interviews, I, I'd say 90 98 of the 100 interviews, I don't need a resume. Um, I'm engaging. They, they know who I am or, or they look at my LinkedIn. That's sufficient. Um, Meta and Intel required a resume. And that annoyed me. <laughs> but I was curious what would happen on the other side of that. And so I'm at the swimming pool. My kids are swimming and I'm writing a resume. I haven't written a resume for nine years. I know the resume has typos in it. And I know I could proof it with my family. And I know I could spend a few days to like get it right. But I hate it. I hate I hate a resume. And, and honestly, ultimately, if you need my resume to hire me, I don't want to work for you because I've you know I've been in this industry a long time. I I I know a lot of executives that I have personal relationships for uh, with. So hindsight, cool. So my, my resume goes viral. It has over five hundred thousand views, and part of the virality engine were people commenting about some of the typos. Uh, like we're talking like 10 comments for the same typo. So hindsight, if I could go back in time, I would have intentionally embedded 30 typos in the resume, things that were super subtle, little grammatical errors, um, because it probably would have had a million views. I love um, the uh, Anakin Skywalker meme you posted about, you know, you're going to send this out to 500,000 folks. Did you actually <laughs> check for typos? <laughs> yeah. well, I absolutely it, love it. It brings up that classical, because we've all heard this, that I saw a resume and they had a typo. No. Right. Which I, which I think is so funny. It's like, well, how I, I probably had six typos. Most resumes are, you know, 70% bullshit anyway. Or like, yeah, definitely uh, glossing over what people did. Well, it's not an accurate representation of what they actually their work. Uh... Yeah, one of my sayings is, you know, when companies quit lying about like how cool the job is, you know, people on their resumes will quit lying about all the <laughs> skills they have. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I part of me was thinking that really what I was fighting for was the best worst resume out there. So I I, <laughs> I intentionally wanted it to be for people to be deciding: is this good or is this bad or is it a lot of both. And it's my inbox blew up with people offering paid resume help. And I even had someone <laughs> send me, they did, they pre-did the work and they sent me my new resume. It's oh, just funny. Geez. Just like a new resume shows up in my inbox. I'm like, oh. You should have sent them back. Here's a link to my master class on generating publicity. You know? Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, think, I think you outdid them, sir. I, I don't know on on the data robot front, like because I, I I know we didn't. I imagine you probably don't want to get into too much detail about some aspects of it, but like honest, honestly, and I've like read some of the. I don't understand what happened. Like what? Like what unethical or illegal thing actually happened that led to this? The, like this whole thing. Hmm. And, and again, if you don't want to talk about it, let me know. Well, I think I think most of it is in my letter it's pretty well written and and ultimately we can link if, to that in the show notes if you want yeah like it 
Yeah, if you happen to have access to it, it's funny. I, I have not shared that letter with anyone, but it's out there in the web. So if, if you have access to it, which I think you do, uh, the, the letter leans into ultimately what happened was um, a few people selling secondary. So you have a VC-backed startup. You want to hear something stock. funny, Ben? Sorry, yeah. I just got to say this. I was searching in Google for your resignation letter and it literally auto-completes. Like I didn't even finish writing Ben Taylor and it said Ben Taylor resignation letter in oh. Google. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's how funny. much, how searched it is. Sorry, I was cutting you off there. No, no. That, so I think that letter covers r- really the key parts because it's, yeah, because, and I have to be a little careful about not going into too many details, but it, I think if I had to, the too long didn't read is some execs sold secondary without inviting. the The takeaway is if you are selling secondary, you should. Well, invite. what is what is what is secondary? Oh, so if you if you yeah, have for stock, like the non startup people, yeah, yeah. So if you have stock, let's say you're an engineer, you've worked at a company for five, six, seven, eight years, you might have hundreds of thousands of shares. If you are a tenured employee, and if there is a secondary offering, let's say we're going to sell, we're, we're going to allow $50 million in secondary sales to employees, as a 10-year employee, you should be able to participate. Because you're an engine, okay. like, you should actually be able to say, sweet, I'm going to take $3 million off the table, do whatever makes you happy with that. Uh, you've earned it. You've been, a, you've been an engineer, and honestly, you've worked under market. Anyway, like if you decided to quit, you would make more money. And so it's, it's mm-hmm. a way to be appreciated. So, so one, of the, one of the themes coming out of this is if you offer secondary, it needs to be offered to everyone. It can't be a, a small group. Or at least people who've vested to a certain yeah, level, and, right? And, and they, that's normal to have a threshold. So I've seen that before where you have to work at least for two or three years at the company. And that, that puts you in this tenured category, which... Honestly, you're the most valuable anyway. You, you know the product inside and out. You know the customer base. Like I, I really don't. It brings up this theme of knowledge leakage. Like you have junior talent coming in, senior talent going out. For a startup, I can't have my senior talent going out because they have a certain amount of acquired knowledge through experience that can't be transferred. It, it, you can try with wikis and different mm-hmm. things and best practices and process, but if a senior employee leaves a company, there's experience that will permanently leave. And so it's not the same as knowing the system inside and out and where all the yeah. bodies are buried, et cetera. Yeah. Well, it, an engineer that's worked at a company for seven years, if there's a catastrophic down event, they can fix it in two hours. But for junior engineers, that takes teams and go to the like, wiki. <laughs> <laughs> this is how you turn the server back on. Well, it brings up this theme of knowledge ac- or knowledge sharing between humans. So, why are humans so amazing? Well, it's because we can share experience. So like if I see a lion eat my friend, I can actually tell another human. I can communicate that effectively. And with storytelling, it might live beyond generations. But the problem with experience sharing is who has time to read 30,000 words in some wiki at a business? Like mm-hmm. so you've joined a new business, even if they've tried to document, document knowledge, They've done it in a way that you don't even want to consume. It's boring. It's confusing. It's out of date. It's out of date. And so coming up with more effective ways to share knowledge and best practices is uh, you know, a key thing that humans still have to figure out. But back to the data robot. So the senior executives were selling these secondary stock options. 
Um, yeah, there, there's a news article that was leaked um, that that had happened and that had caused a stir in the engineering group. Um, but it's kind of a little bit of a sensitive topic. Most okay. of the information you need for those questions is all public. Yeah. Can, can we kind of like, because what I'd like to do, Ben, is kind of tie this back to the ego journey thing that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Because this is actually the thing that did it for me, the, like the light bulb that went off. And I was like, Ben's in a different place than the guy that I met a few years ago. And it was yeah. because it, it, I looked at how you were posting about it. And again, I think to kind of your point earlier, where I think maybe there was a little bit of like oversharing or things that you were still kind of like publicly like trying to figure out. Right. But um, the thing that stood out to me was the paternalism. And I was like, Ben's doing, Ben's not doing this for himself or to get the clicks or something like that. He's actually doing it for the other people at the company. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's, that's, you know, this mighty, mighty green of you, man. And I was like, because <laughs> when we talked about this on the podcast last week, I was like, you know, sometimes when you do something, like you jump on the grenade, the grenade blows up and then, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're off the field, but other times you come out on the other side and it's, and the thing about it that makes it a risk is you don't know when you're doing it, that you're going to come out the other side. And I was like, oh, this, yeah. this, this is, this is, this is a new guy. So yeah, I don't know. You, do you, you want to talk about that at all? Yeah. You definitely don't know. So I think, Initially, the resignation was coming from, it was coming from a good spot. Um, and, and actually, I, I have to be a little careful how, um, it, so if you tell a story in the past that's emotional, you can be transported to that and become emotional. And so um, after I posted my resignation letter, my phone starts blowing up with employees texting me. And the things they were texting me made me start crying because I was so overwhelmed by because when you have an individual contributor, they sometimes they don't have the same sway. Because you know, if you just had an IC engineer post that, I don't. I would like to think it would offer the same type of impact, but it's very different if you have a senior leader that is kind of giving the bird to the other execs and in explaining why. And, and so I was very overwhelmed by all the employees because. So, so here's something to bring up. What, what, what were they? What were they saying to you? Oh, they were saying things like, um, "You, you said what needed to be fucking said." You know, thank gotcha. you so much. Like, you know, just kind of sharing. Because a lot of employees, they're not in a situation where they're willing or able to do that because they have their own stock situation. They don't want to get fired. They they have a reason to get their payday, and me doing that greatly reduces my payday if not eliminates it like that mm -hmm. that's still something that is unknown i might find out in a couple months that my payday was sent to zero that is actually a real possibility um which i'm which is fine like um so with the resignation i would argue it was coming from a good spot but i think with all the attention i would argue it resurrected this toxic ego again like 110 interviews and, and the issue with that much attention is by me telegraphing the attention it creates more attention it just creates this feeding frenzy and so me saying i have 110 interviews scheduled me saying i this is happening me showing people where i'm flying and me kind of telegraphing this it just creates more interest more inbound interest and so it's called I, the matthew effect the matthew effect <laughs> yeah it's a network analysis term please continue oh, oh yeah so it's so unfortunately me flaunting this arrogance 
helps with the inbound and that helps with my insecurity that I'm not going to be able to find a job that I want. So, so I would tell people getting a job is easy. Finding the right job is impossible. And that's really what I was feeling that, and people would say, well, why don't you just go to a startup? I'm not in a cash situation right now where being a repeat founder, you can make 150,000 a year. And I'm not in a cash situation where that is currently feasible for my household. Hopefully in the future, I can go back to... Because if you can't find the right job, you should go do a startup. So if you just feel like I interview with 100 companies and I'm not happy, well, great. Go to the drawing board, figure out what you want to do. (laughs) Is this the next step for you, Ben? Well, so I did a startup before and I would like to do another startup, but I want to do it when my house is paid off, when I... yeah. because the safety. opportunity, yeah, but the other, the other opportunity too is when you're later in your career, um, I'm 39, I've got gray in my beard, I've made plenty of mistakes. When you're later in your career, you can actually pick up a basket of advisor agreements that are paid where honestly you can, as long as you're smart about it, you can make a pretty good monthly nut just checking in with these smaller startups. And so so I think with the chaos, because I, I have no severance, like I, I actually don't have any cash flow. So I, I have to land a job quickly in five weeks. But if I had yeah, more maybe, time. Let's, let's talk about like, you know, again, back to kind of the ego journey, but how it relates to, you, you know, your forward looking view on things. Like, What would a good job look like? You know, uh, what, I what would fulfillment question. look like? Like what, how would you get to a place where you feel like you've made it to the next rung on the journey? Yeah, so I love that question. That question is worthy of an entire podcast because people, people that are really naive, just assume it's comp. So the the job I'm the job I've decided on, I I've made a decision. Um, that that decision probably won't be public till November. So the job I've decided on, it is not the highest comp, it is not the highest title, and it is not the biggest challenge. Um, but it's the right thing that I need right now for my family. And so, and, and I had to unpack ego out of the job and I had to unpack anger out of the job, which was complicated. And so ego, because there's always the next big challenge. Like there, there's no one that could ever tell me I'm done. I've, I've reached the pinnacle of my career. I, if anyone ever said that, I'd say, well, you're naive. Like there, there is always the next challenge. And so one of these opportunities that I had was, um, company that's getting ready to just explode they're going to hire 100 data scientists and we're in the when i thought about that super exciting because i want a challenge that kicks my ass but i've got a daughter that's turning 13 she's my princess so i imagine this scenario where you know i'm on this podcast i get a text message i'm like oh i guess i'm flying around the world tomorrow missing birthdays but don't worry Daddy has his Lambo in the garage, or like you know what, what <laughs> yeah. whatever the hell. Like, so you want a job where you feel appreciated. You want a job where you feel challenged. You know, ideally, you have other people around you where you're drinking from the fire hose. Um, you want a job that respects the stage of life that you're in. So I, I would argue there's different stages of life when you're raising kids, and I could see a stage ten years from now. I'm happy to be that asshole on a plane. Like I'm happy. Um, you know, to fly family with me if they're available, but my, my kids will be in a very different stage of life. And I think they'll be with friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, and they, but 
I would rather invest in the memories now so they know that, you know, dad's very driven, but dad loves you. Dad would rather, I didn't go skiing with my kids at all last ski season in Utah because I was too busy with beta robot stuff. And so I, I would like to go skiing in my home state with my kids. Yeah. Yeah. So that, but that, that type of grind showed up with my startup as well. And so I think that's what makes a good job. If you are maximizing comp, you're giving up on, I can guarantee the job won't make you happy. Like yeah. if you're just maximizing the highest offer, you are giving things up for that. I think you're giving us a lot of food for thought, man. Do you mind if we, we kind of lighten things up a bit here oh, for yeah. a second? Yeah. Um, just because we, we do have a section called the nerdery on this podcast where we kind of nerd out about some things, but we, and Scott and I are probably going to record some stuff offline to talk about some articles and everything that, that we may not have time to get to today. But I did want to bring up one topic that I know you would probably want to weigh in on, which is AI killing robots. <laughs> yeah. So you used to do all these videos where you would just like record yourself in the car talking about it. Like I watched a few of them and you were always like half the videos you're talking about AI killing robots. So yeah. where do things stand with AI killing robots at the moment? <laughs> it's funny. Cause I haven't really thought about that for a couple of years, but for a while I, I wrote three blogs and I think a few of them are pretty good. Um, what is the blog? I'll have to send you a link, but I think it's called our darkest day. And so I'm, I want the public to understand what a trillion dollar war contract would bring because I, I make the argument that Hollywood is not smart enough for you to comprehend what's coming. And by comprehend what's coming, how does a hive mind work when it droids and drones? How does full spectrum vision work? Like th- there's some technical concepts or, um, sh- or having, it actually makes sense if you're doing a, going to war to have every droid or drone be genetically unique. And I mean like, their digital DNA is unique. They have, you know, different arms or like there's different things where they were 3D printed in some factory. Yeah, I was saying 3D field. printing. You can make them yeah. with slight variations. Yeah. And then you have their kill death ratios being satellite back to the you know the the parent company. And so when your droid goes offline, you know, but you also know how successful it was. And so you can imagine this war where you're just cranking out these genetically modified improvements, but. You can do that even faster if you simulate the war in virtual reality. So like if you have, if you're literally fighting this war with this anticipated enemy with agents in a supercomputer, um, you could evolve droids and drones before the public ever sees them. And so you can imagine shipping a droid and there's no human inspiration in the design. It's literally just maximized to kill. And and I think when you get AI with a runaway event, it's when you think about humans with AK-47s, what is the kill-death ratio efficiency of a, of a drone? Early on, it might be one-to-one or like five-to-one where it's being more successful, but eventually you could hit numbers where it's like a thousand-to-one. Like you, you as a human with your machine gun have zero chance against this thing. And the only thing you can use to respond is similar AI. So Eventually, I think humans will be taken out of the mix. Eventually, it'll just be these AI systems fighting, and it's all about which AI system has the edge. There's a Star Trek episode essentially deals with this exact same sort of scenario where they don't even uh, uh, conduct the war anymore. They just send people like death chambers. How, how yeah. many years away are we from this sort of but, thing? So, so when you get to this super AI, um, it actually makes sense 
for you to, and this is a very dark topic, uh, it makes sense for you to have a human, a digital human model and for AI to be essentially torturing this human model digitally because it might find out that there's a drug, there's an electromagnetic beam, there's something that humans don't know that becomes very effective. Um, yeah, th thanks for lightening the mood in the nerdery, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're the one that asked the word question. We I should, know, we should I have know. had a question fault. on how AI will maximize creativity, happiness, <laughs> like those. I, I know we have to wrap up. I have to go to another meeting. Yeah, soon, we'll, but... we'll let somebody else answer that question. Okay. But, um, well, Ben, I, I really didn't mean to cut you off there, but we are getting at the hour. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you know, this is, this is wild. So thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think for the final thought, I, I would like to blog about this experience in detail. And, and the hope of doing that is I want to share some insights that could help other candidates. Because I, I love the idea, Cole, of people doing a pre-recorded interview and really thinking like, what is my 14 minute pitch? And maybe you have a two minute pitch. And if you can kind of, even if you can refine that yourself, I would argue you're going to give a better interview. If you, if Cole has, you know, Cole or anyone else has their 14 minute pitch recorded, even if you don't show that to me and it's now time to interview, you're going to hit some really interesting notes that I think are great. Um, yeah, it's like a, it's like a standup uh, comedian. They've got one minute of, you know, content to cover and then they, you know, work their way up to a full hour. Um, well, it looks like we lost Scott, but uh, you've been oh. listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ben. Yeah.